Amen and amen. If you have a copy of God's Word, I would invite you to open it with me to Isaiah chapter 30 in the Old Testament. Isaiah 30, if you are headed that way, you may need to use the table of contents, though it is a large book. If you use the flipping through the Bible method, you will very likely uh, discover it there in the middle. We're diving right into the heart of one of the major prophets in the Old Testament today to talk about the God of justice. And we have much work to do, but I believe this is going to be well worth it. I'm excited to read and study this text alongside you today. But to kind of help us find our bearings before we dive in, I want to take a moment to set up where we're at. We have talked about the God of Israel. We've talked about Israel, God's people, and how God called a people. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt. You remember Moses, let my people go, and they escape the Egyptians, and then they go into the desert. They make a covenant with the Lord at Mount Sinai, and that covenant is, hey, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And this covenant was based on obedience to the Lord. If you obeyed the Lord and they walked within that covenant, they would walk in God's blessing but if they strayed from that covenant they would find themselves in a position of the Lord's discipline and judgment so we took a, a couple months together to actually talk about this transition from prophets and judges to kings if you remember our series the search for a king so we saw how God went from from them to this king Saul and the people of Israel are now governed by a king so they have Saul then they had David then they had Solomon, but then uh, as a sign of God's judgment upon his people, the kingdom actually divides and splits. So you have the northern portion remaining as Israel, and then the southern portion becoming the people known as Judah. They became their own people group. So just so you know, church splits have been happening from the very beginning, all right? It's just a thing that happens because when people are involved, it gets messy, right? Well, in this time, the Lord would send prophets to address his people, uh, to speak the word of the Lord, to declare things to them. Sometimes they were future things. Sometimes they were present things. In fact, much of the prophecy we have in the Old Testament is really what we would call biblical preaching. So when people ask, is there prophecy still existing today? Lord, I hope so. And I mean that not taking the Lord's name in vain. Lord, I hope so. I pray that there is still biblical preaching and proclamation happening in our pulpit and in the, the stages, cool coffee tables, skinny jean wearing coffee guys all over the city and the states of America, okay? I pray that we still have biblical preaching. Now, in our Old Testament, we're going to have what's known as major prophets and minor prophets. Now, major and minor doesn't necessarily talk about the weight of their message and what it's really about and how important it is, but really it's about how much content they had. So we are in the middle of a book, and Isaiah is known as a major prophet because this is a big old book, guys. There are a lot of chapters. There's a lot of stuff happening here in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah was a prophet that the Lord used for many, many years for the people of Judah, starting with the reign of King Uzziah. Uh, if you remember Isaiah 6, if you have a church background, you've heard a, a preacher in a very good preacher voice in the year King Uzziah died. Like, uh, holy, 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 like an incredible passage in Isaiah 6. Some of you are like, what are you talking about, man? You'll have to go read Isaiah 6 later. But he served until the time of King Hezekiah as well. So these were uncertain and troubling times for God's people in Judah. There were a lot of people saying a lot of things. Uncertainty ruled the day. 
Their leadership was struggling, and it was, you know, people, I'm assuming, were griping. I bet the Facebook of uh, Judah in this time was wild. The equivalent of if you just kind of innocently threw out, hey, what do y'all think of Donald Trump? And just like slowly backed up, right? Like this is what's happening in Judah, right? People are chaotic, crazy, a lot of opinions, a lot of thoughts, a lot of ideas, lots of craziness. And into the midst of this, as the Assyrians are a rising world power, both Israel and Judah are fearful of being captured and enslaved. The Assyrians are going to come and take us over, and fear really ruled the day. And when fear rules the day, church, there's a big question that we need to ask. Who will you trust? Will you trust in God, or will you trust in yourself? Or will you trust in the things of the world? God sent Isaiah really throughout this entire book to consistently call God's people to trust in him alone, yet the people continually decided they were going to do something different. You know anybody like that? It's you. Some of you are looking at your spouse, right? I just needed to just affirm that real quick. I was feeling the stare from Mallory back there. I was like, hey, come on. So Isaiah prophesies and shares really tough news that is eventually to come uh, that, guess what? Your fears are going to come true. That was alarming news. It's not fun to have to deliver bad news. It couldn't have been popular, but even in the midst of this difficult news for Judah, the God of hope is proclaiming the good news for those who will turn and trust in the Lord. So in many of the prophets in the Old Testament, we see really kind of a bad news, good news situation, right? Things are going to get bad, but trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord. So we're going to see that back and forth even in this passage we read today. So with kind of some background information, let's dive into Isaiah 30, verses 1 through 18. And don't don't get crazy, all right? I'm going to explain some of the things we see here because this is a wild Old Testament prophetic passage, and I love it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Ah, stubborn children. That's a rough start, isn't it? Do you know anybody? Again, don't look at them. (laughs) Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt? Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For those his, his officials are his zone and his envoys reach Haines, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. An oracle on the beasts of the Negev, through a land of trouble and anguish from where the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent, They carry their riches on the back of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still. That is some pretty serious Old Testament shade that I'll explain to you in a moment. And now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for a time to come as a witness forever. 
For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word, I love that. They're like, hey, please stop talking about the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah says, therefore, the Holy One of Israel declares, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly and in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon the swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee. Till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Will you pray with me? Lord, there is so much here. We have much to ponder, and I pray by your grace you would speak to us in a clear way so that we can grab hold of this truth and apply it to our lives and find a way to walk this out. So God, I pray that we would be a people who return and rest in you and in your gospel so that we can know this God of justice and respond appropriately. Thank you for what you're going to do, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, verse 18 of this text introduces us to a powerful truth. And then moving on from verses 19 through, I believe, 33 to the end of this book, uh, you are going to see really some future prophecy and a kind of double fulfillment going on there. It's talking about the judgment that the Lord is going to bring on the Assyrians. So again, bad news, things are going to get bad. But in the future, the Lord is going to bring judgment on the Assyrians. But we also think that this is talking about the millennial reign of Christ. That after the seven-year tribulation, Christ is going to come and set up a literal reign on this earth that will last for a thousand years. And his rule and reign is described in absolutely beautiful language here in these verses. You may want to read that and check that out later. And it is wise, it is helpful to consider the realities of those future prophecies. But it's all really predicated on what we find here in verse 18. So read that with me again. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. There, there's a lot happening here, but, but here's what I want to mention first. Our God, once again, as we've said recently, is all about his glory. We have a God who is all about his glory. Notice what the text says. Note that God exalts himself. Why does God exalt himself? To be merciful to us. 
Friends, did you know the most merciful thing our Lord can do is show us his glory? (laughs) The most merciful thing our God can do is reveal to us how big, awesome, mighty, and incredible he is. Again, we said that in anthropomorphic terms, as we talk as humans, exalting yourself is a bad thing, but for God, it is the most loving thing he can do, is exalt himself so that we see his glory and turn from all of these other lesser glories that we tend to spend our lives seeking and instead see his glory. I'm getting ahead of myself because God of glory is next week. It's a beautiful, beautiful truth here. So the call is, as the Lord exalts himself and we see his glory, to believe in him. To know that he truly is awesome, that he truly is a God of glory, but he's also a God of justice. So if he is the God of justice and we live for him, then why would we spend our lives trying to fix things ourselves? Right? That's what the question is. To be clear, this isn't a call to apathy. Rather, it's a call to work in the ways of Yahweh, the God of justice. Justice in this text refers to right decision-making, the right decision-making of God. He is always right. He is always just. His ways are never wrong. Never. You and I are fallible. We mess up all the time. We have poor judgment. But the God of justice never has poor judgment. He never makes a bad decision. His ways are perfect and good. So what we have here in Isaiah chapter 30 is really a question. Are we going to follow his perfect ways or are we going to try to do our own thing? And Isaiah 30 is going to present us two snapshots, two ways of responding to the God of justice. There is a way to respond to the God of justice that ignores and dances around the reality of sin, and there is a way that deals with it. So the question for us is, are we going to deal with sin in our nation? Are we going to deal with sin in our families? Are we going to deal with sin in our own lives? Or are we going to tolerate, accept, and ignore the sins of our lives and our culture? Now, I don't want you to bail on this message yet, okay? Give me a little bit more of a chance, okay? Because we're going to talk a lot about this first part, about the danger of dealing with God's justice and sin in our own way, because that's what the text does. But hang on, because we're getting to the good news. I think the reason the bulk of this text addresses the way we tend to respond in our own flesh and in our own way is because this is a big struggle for us. This is what we deal with. So we must start here with the text. And if you're taking notes, I want to simply call this our way of dealing with the God of justice and the reality of sin. Our way of dealing with the God of justice and the reality of sin. So this worldly way of responding to the God of justice is marked by a few qualities we see in this text. First, we see compromise with the world. In verses 1 through 5, we see God's people strategizing and working hard to do something. The Assyrians are looming large. So the people of God, rather than consulting the Lord, rather than looking to his word or listening to his prophets, they are busy making plans. They are busy going to the big leadership conference so they can figure out what to do. They're reading the latest and greatest books. And in all of their brilliance and all of their hard work, with all of their leadership giftedness, they come up with a brilliant plan. 
we're going to go partner with Egypt. What is it about God's people always wanting to go back to Egypt, right? I mean, this is the same bunch that in the desert, they're like, uh, let's go back. It was better there when we were slaves. And here they are once again saying, let's go back to Egypt. Maybe they can help us. Verse 1 says, they carry out a plan, but the Lord says, not my plan. They make an alliance, but not an alliance with me. And I think we have this strange tendency, probably like they do, to make this worldly compromise sound godly, as if we're doing the right thing for the Lord. But notice what the Lord says in this text. When we don't consult him, when we don't ask him, when we don't look to his word, when we just do it our way, we're only adding sin to sin. That's what the text said. So even trying to fix injustice in worldly ways or your ways is just adding sin to sin. So Isaiah says this compromise is not going to lead to deliverance. Instead, verse 3 says you're gonna, it's going to lead to your shame. It's going to lead to humiliation. Verse 5 just uses the word disgrace. Worldly compromise leads to sin and destruction for God's people. But we're going to see this slide continuing. In verses 6 and 7, Isaiah describes a people trusting in worthless and empty things. So not only does man compromise with the world, but we trust in worthless and empty things. In in verses 6 through 7, this Negev was a region between Judah and Egypt. As an envoy would try to go to Egypt to win their favor and get their support, they would do what you do in that situation. You would load up valuables on donkeys and camels and caravan there and give them gold, give them precious things and give them gifts and, and in hope of giving them these gifts so that they would then say, all right, we got your back. You now have an alliance with us. And in the Negev, the convoys that were going would encounter many wild animals. You see the names of those. We've got, you know, uh, lions, adders, and flying serpents. Oh my, right? They're all there. And verse 7 compares Egypt's help to this sea monster that the text refers to as Rahab who sits still. Uh, scholars really don't know exactly what this was talking about. Uh, Rahab was the name of, of kind of almost like a Loch Ness monster kind of vibe that they had back then, so it could be referring to that. Uh, some believe that it might be referring to literal hippos. The, a large, large thing just sitting on top of the water, doing nothing, taking up a lot of space, a lot of things going on. A large, dangerous creature that sat on the water and appeared to do nothing. God is saying, Egypt is a big old do-nothing. And I want to say that when we seek to compromise with the world and trust in empty things, we can make a lot of noise. In our culture, we, we can grow a big church. We can look big. We can look awesome. But when we don't counsel, seek the counsel of the Lord, when we do things in our own strength, when we do not properly respond to the God of justice in our world, we're just a big old nothing. Rahab who sits still and when we're sitting still the last thing we want is to be disturbed oh my least favorite thing in the world is when I find myself on that Sunday afternoon I didn't go to the room to take a nap I was just trying to read on the couch and the Sunday afternoon sun hits my face and I slowly go from reading to sleeping upon which time my three-year-old will run up and just slap me on the stomach or in other places and say, Daddy! And I am shaken awake. It's the worst. 
Rahabs who do nothing do not want to be stirred from their do-nothing slumber. So can I tell you what ends up happening to us? We want to ignore the truth. God calls Isaiah to go and prophesy. So again, we compromise with the world. We trust in worthless things. And thirdly, we ignore the truth. So God says, Isaiah, go tell them what's coming. Bring the, tell them about the judgment of God. But notice what the false prophets and many of the people cry out in verse 10. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. And then they just say it. It's astounding to me that they just straight up say what they're thinking in verse 10 or verse 11. They don't say, you're wrong. This isn't true. Let me counter that argument. No, they basically say, lie to us. Stop telling us the truth. Stop giving us words from Yahweh. Stop talking about his holiness. Oh, friends, isn't it heartbreaking to see how many in the modern church are following this pattern today? And even many churches, their statement of faith looks good enough. It seems like it makes sense. They act like they're following the God of justice. But honestly, we're too busy doing it our way to deal with the truth. We'd rather just ignore it. We suppress the truth. In verses 12 through 14, we see the tragic results and consequences of doing it our own way. Because God's people have compromised, because they've trusted in the world instead of the Lord, because they've chosen to ignore the truth, the text says that disaster is coming. Their walls are going to crash down when they least expect it. They're going to be shattered like a clay pot turned to dust. And verse 17 paints the picture of an abandoned people. The New Living Translation says, left like a lonely flagpole on top of the hill. A nation that has completely abandoned Yahweh and his judgment, and he lets them go their own way. Before long, all that's left is a, a lonely flagpole and a tattered flag. Church, don't you see so much of our own culture in this text? I think we could apply this in, in so many different ways. But for me, really, the biggest, clearest example, biggest burden on my heart would be the plight of the unborn. The reality that, that right here in our city, we have 20 babies a day being murdered. Right here in Wichita. And we see this pattern in this text in the way that we all, as a, as a city and as a nation, have dealt with the issue of abortion in our culture. There are some in our world who maybe have been discipled more by the culture instead of by the Lord. And you may think, well, there's not a problem with that. That's all. You may even celebrate that number today. But there are some even who would call themselves believers who might would say, this isn't justice. Yet the ways we go about doing something about it tend to be based on the world and not God and his ways. See, we've compromised with the world. We haven't really prayed about it. We haven't really sought to, to do anything about it. We've just made plans. And I think like the people in this text, we've trusted in empty things, in political systems, in so-called pro-life politicians. We've given money to groups hoping that they would do something about it to kind of cover our guilt. But these ways have not been led by His Spirit and His Word. We've put our hope in a government that cannot save us. 
We've put our hope and our money in a pro-life movement that, quite honestly, has explicitly said that they don't want to completely abolish abortion and offer equal protection to the unborn. And many of us have chosen to simply ignore the truth. Like, it's too hard to look at. Like, we've bought into the lie that this is such a big issue that there's really nothing we can do about it. So we just change the channel. We, we choose to suppress it and ignore the truth. In fact, I, I, many of you right now, I know, and even myself, I'm uncomfortable talking about this. And you're like, bro, I wish you would just talk about something else. Prophesy smooth things. Speak illusions over us. Many would rather be do-nothing church hippos, eating and getting spiritually fat while the blood of the unborn fills our streets. Pastor, you're making people uncomfortable. We'd rather just ignore that. But friends, because we've ignored this for so long, this great sin, and I would just say among many other great sins in our nation and in our families and in our own lives, I would say it's safe to say that our nation is under the judgment of God. I can just see that image of the, the tattered flag on the flagpole, lonely up on top of the hill. And, and listen, th this obviously abortion and the unborn, this is on my heart, and I pray that it would be on the heart of our church family as well, but this text isn't just about that. Brothers and sisters, this text is about your sin, and it's about my sin. When we try to reckon with the God of justice our way, our nation, our families, and our own lives will become an absolute disaster. See, see this in this text. Our lives become hollow and empty, and, and we find ourselves in great, great danger. Oh, but church, if this was the end of the message, we would be a hopeless people. Because here's the reality, based on what we know from the Word of God. God is a God of justice. What He says is always right. He is always just. He is always correct in his determinations. He has never been wrong. And here's what he says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 3.23. And then in Romans 6.23, here's what he says. For the wages of sin is death. So the God of justice says you are a sinner. And because of your sin, you are under the wrath of God. You deserve death. Physical death, yes, but, but far worse is spiritual death, eternal separation from God in hell forever. But the good news of the gospel is that God has made a way for us to be right with him. Friends, this God of justice longs to know you and me. Isn't that staggering? Like we are the most unjust people ever. Yet the God of justice says, I see your injustice. I still love you. Grace, grace, God's grace. So rather than dealing with the God of justice our way, the Lord invites us to deal with his justice and our sin his way. And his way is through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
This is how we deal with the God of justice. Jesus loved us enough that he died on the cross to pay the price for our sins, to make us right with the God of justice. A common question people will ask revolves around the justice of God. People will say, well, pastor, why did God have to send Jesus to die on the cross for our sins? Why can't he just forgive us and move on? Friends, because God is a God of justice. But the cross of Jesus Christ is where the love of God and the justice of God intersect in a beautiful way. What Romans 3 actually tells us, verse 26, says this, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. A righteous, holy, and just God must punish sin. But our God loved us so much that he sent his only son to pay the price for us. So when Jesus hung on the cross, did you know what was happening? The God of justice poured out his wrath and punishment that every single human past, present, and future has committed was poured out upon Christ. The wrath of God was satisfied in that moment through what Christ did on the cross. And he died on that cross, taking sin and death with him to the grave, but God raised him up three days later, victorious over sin and death. And the Bible says that if we admit that we are sinners, if we know that we are facing spiritual death, uh, and we go to Jesus and say, I know that you died on the cross for my sins, I want to surrender my life to you, that in that moment, That transaction that happened on Calvary doesn't become some distant thing that happened 2,000 years ago, but it becomes something that happens in your life. Your sins are paid for and you are given his righteousness. And God is just because he has punished sin and you are justified through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And you come to know in a real and powerful way this God of justice. This is the gospel. You are a great sinner, but we have a great Savior. He is always just, and in His justice and His love at the cross, He died so that you could be just as well. Not through your goodness, not through your works, but through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ on the cross. This gospel is all over the Bible, by the way. In fact, look at verse 15 of what we just studied. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. That word returning can also be translated repenting. We've spent a couple of weeks talking about repentance and what that looks like. To turn from our current way of living and to turn to Christ. This is what I love about this verse, though. This turning is a turning to rest. It's a turning to rest. You see, salvation is not a work that you and I do, friends. But salvation is a work that Jesus Christ has done. And when we repent and we turn to him, do you know what we're doing? We are turning to rest in Christ Jesus. All we have to do is accept this free gift from Christ to recognize our sin and repent. And then the call is to rest in the completed work of Christ. Are you saved today? 
Have you repented? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Christ? If not, let today be the day of salvation. Oh, but church, our response doesn't stop there. Our response to the God of justice continues. I love the second line. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. It's almost as if the Lord says, stop talking. Just be still. Find your real source of strength. I think this is a needed word for us today. In a world where there is so much injustice, outside of us, inside of us, our natural tendency is to get to work fixing it. Like, what can I do? Let's make a plan. Let's go to Egypt. But this text leaves no room for vigilante justice warriors for Jesus. How do we combat injustice in our world? How do we fight sin in our own lives? Stop talking. Stop your planning. Stop your endless striving. Instead, trust in the Lord. And as we trust Him, we learn what it looks like to follow Him through His Word. And as we follow Him through His Word, we find His strength. Again, don't hear what I'm not saying, friends. This is not a call to passivity. Have you read your Bibles? God's people are a people of action. We find people all over the text doing bold and wild things for the Lord. Courageous, bold. And I would just say that courage and boldness are woefully short in our modern culture. But hear me, friends. Because there is a lot of boldness. Some of you are like, you haven't been reading the same Facebook feed as me, Pastor. But we're bold for worldly things. Some of you are going to be more bold in 2024 because you think some political goober is going to fix all this. That's dumb. I'm, I'm trying to get ahead of it because y'all almost beat me down in 2020. Quit it. Like I'm playing ahead by not being that person. We don't need a worldly plan to fight cosmic injustice. I'll say that again. We don't need a worldly plan to fight cosmic injustice. Our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with power and principalities. So we need to be a people of boldness and courage and action, but friends, the only option we have is to do it God's way. We don't need to partner with the Democrats. We don't need to partner with the Republicans. We don't need the church for the last 40 years has been trying to partner with all these organizations and all these things to fix all these things. And can I just tell you, we are a way bigger mess now than we were 50 years ago. Can I tell you what we need to do? Church, let's start being the church. We're not a political activist organization. We're not a nonprofit that's just trying to do a lot of good things. We are the people of God who have been given an assignment by God to impact our culture. It's going to require more boldness than many of us have. And can I tell you where we're going to find our boldness? We're not going to go find the Rahab do-nothing hippos of our culture and say, help! But instead, we're going to run to the God of encouragement, the God of hope, 
the God of glory, grace, and salvation. I'm just spoiling this whole series. And the God of justice. Because he has made us just and he's given us everything we need to help this movement of justice that he came to start roll like a mighty river through our culture. May God use a bold and courageous people responding to injustice his way to make a difference in our world. Lord, thank you for this text. I, I know it's a heavy message. It's, I can tell by the quietness of my soul and my friends, Lord, that this is much for us to chew on and think on, but Lord, your word does not return void. So I pray, God, that your truth would just settle in, that we would be convicted where we need to be convicted, that, Lord, even encouraged where we need to be encouraged, and that you, through this truth, would help us to, number one, be made just through the power of the gospel. If there's anybody in here who does not know you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. I pray that today they would know you in a real and tangible way. And God, I also pray that those who do know you already would find courage and boldness not in the things of this world, not in anything else, but Lord, in you and in your truth so that we can respond to injustice in our world, in our families, and in our lives in a way that honors and glorifies you. Oh, Lord, thank you.